0: My name is Jared. I'm one of the pastors here at Upper Room, and I'm very excited for what God has put on my heart to share with you all today. As you've just heard, Pastor Nathan, Caitlin, and Asa, they're on sabbatical, um, and we're just so thankful for them. We're so thankful for the rest that they are getting right now, and so you are not already doing so. Be in prayer for them. I think Buck has said this multiple times, is that your pastor's or are better when we pray for them. They sound better. Um, Some would even say they look a little bit better when you pray for them. And so I encourage you to continue lifting them up in prayer that not only they find rest, but in the silence of on the sabbatical that they are able to hear a new voice from God. With all the stuff that we have coming up, because we do have a whole lot of things on the horizon, that we pray that God gives them a fresh and new vision. Okay, so I'm going to come up here now, because if not, I'm going to be down there the whole time. I consider myself more of a teacher than a preacher personally, uh, but I'll play a little bit of preacher today. And so just, just so that you can go ahead and get there if you want, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 9 today. If you want to open that in your Bibles or on your phones, whichever, you can go ahead and open up there. We're not going to start there. We're going to gradually get there together. And so when I think about Endless Summer, that's been our theme for this summer is Endless Summer. It originally is based off a surfer movie. I'm not much of a surfer at all, so I've never seen it. And so when I hear of Endless Summer, I think of all the fun times I had over the summer before high school. That was before I I went to high school in like the early 2010s just to kind of age me a little bit. And so that was right when like if you played a sport you were doing it all summer long. And so that's like when travel ball first started getting big. And so I didn't really have a lot of real summers in my late teenage years. Um, And even then in college, because I was doing internships all the time. And so my mind goes back to when I was like elementary school, middle school. Now this is like right before cell phones too. And so if I wanted to get in touch with my friends, my mom gave me like a little address book and it had home phone numbers. Anybody, any 90s kids remember landlines? How That's how we got in touch with our friends. Like we didn't have cell phones, or if you did, it was like a track phone and you had to pay for it to like talk to them. And so I would go every summer, I would go through my yearbook of all the people signing in the yearbook and I would write down their contact information. And throughout the summer, I would call their home phone and be like, hey, you wanna come over and swim today? And they'd be like, yes or no. And then they also didn't have GPS, and so I had to be like, okay, so you're going to drive this far, look for the, a green mailbox on a really long driveway. And nine times out of ten, they would completely miss it, and I would never see them. <laughs> but those were the days where when they would come over, that we would do stuff like we would play sharks and minnows in the pool. We would go play army in the woods. I was blessed to have a lot of acres. I'm originally from Georgia. And so we had, like, 20 acres total, and most of that was woods. And so we'd go back there and play, like, airsoft and stuff and pretend that we were soldiers. Um, sometimes we would pretend that we were filmmakers. Me and my friends, we would have, like, a little camcorder. Sometimes we stole my dad's camera and his computer to edit it, and we would make commercials for movies. Not movies, but, like, the commercials for movies. <laughs> it's just what we enjoy doing. And the essence of that is the imagination it's taking the risk to be creative and to live into the moment and even when it sounds crazy, be like, hey, you know what would be crazy? What if we like, made a trailer for a movie about zombies? Yeah, let's do it. And you take the whole day to do it because there's nothing else to do. But it was in that time that I remember it was a lot easier to dream. It was a lot easier to be lost in my imagination and to, and to do and to be because As we know, the longer that we are on this earth, the more dangerous it is to dream. It's more of a risk. It sounds a little bit crazier when you're 26 than when you're age six. And for example, um, so my nephew, he's two years old, right? And so for his dream as a two-year-old, you would think he'd wanna be something like an astronaut or a superhero, he wants to be a garbage truck. I think we have a picture of his, uh, of his first or his second birthday cake. It's literally just a garbage truck. He loves garbage trucks. His dad's in the Air Force and there was one day he was flying over their house at the base they're stationed at right now. And so Katie, um, his mom, they brought him outside. they like, okay, look, daddy's about to fly over. And literally right as he's about to fly over to land, Eli turns around and goes, garbage truck. <laughs> And just watches the garbage truck go by just as Hunter is like landing. And so they completely missed it. And he is enamored by garbage trucks and it is amazing. And as I'll tell you some stories about some of my first dreams, I'm not going to get in the way of that. If he wants to be a garbage truck, he can be the head sanitation officer wherever he wants to be. That's awesome. But for me, my first dream and the theme of a lot of my first birthday parties and a lot of my Halloween costumes was the Red Power Ranger as you can see here. That's, that's my sister Abby, she's Clifford, and that's me. I, so I was probably the Red Power Ranger at least three times before the age of 10. It was either that or Spider-Man. It was one of those two. But that's what I wanted to be. I would watch Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. Any other nerds here that watch that in the 90s? I know my guy Michael in there is smiling because I know he loves Power Rangers. But that's who I wanted to be. I wanted to be the Red Ranger. He was the leader. He was the one that did all the cool stuff. You know, and so, and he had a T-Rex as his, like, giant zord, or it's like a big robot, I'm sorry. Um, and so, I love T-Rexes. i like, that's who I want to be. That's who I want to be when I grow up. And one day, my aunt would normally drive me to school, and sometimes would pick me up. And so, one day, she looked at me and said, Jared, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, well, I really want to be the Red Power Ranger. And she looked at me, and she said... Really? You're really going to be the Red Power Ranger? Jared, the only thing you eat is mashed potatoes. You don't eat anything else. You're such a picky eater. How are you going to get strong enough to be the Red Power Ranger? And so I was like, oh my gosh, you're right. I am a very picky eater. There's no way. There's no way that I can be the Power Ranger. And I was crushed. Because I didn't meet up to the standard that I just had found out of what it was to be a Power Ranger. And so I gave up on that dream. The next one... The next one after that, once I moved on, was I wanted to open my own zoo. I read the books. I watched the, the shows and the movies. Anyone remember Zabumafu on PBS? I, one of my earliest memories is I remember making my mom reschedule a hair appointment because Zabumafu came on at noon. And so I said, Mom, it's not going to work. I have to watch Zabumafu today. And then there's zoo books. Anybody remember Zoo books. I had an entire shelf cornered off for zoo books. I had so many, they're probably like rotten in a landfill right now, I have no idea where they are, but that's what I wanted to do. And I had learned from my previous mistake of not having a plan, and so this time I devised a plan. I said, okay, so I'm gonna go to the University of Georgia, go dogs. Now I'm gonna go, yeah, okay, so nice. At least I know the crowd now, roll tide, no? But. I'll keep my mouth shut from now on on, on <laughs> that end. But I said, I'm going to go to UGA. I'm going to study zoology. And then I'm going to open a zoo with my then best friend who was also a big animal lover and did kind of like the same things as I did. We always checked out the animal books in our library. And so as, you can, as you're probably catching on, one day I'm riding home with my aunt. My dad's sitting right there. He knows exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> I'm not going to say your name. Um, And so, once again, she asked me, Jared, what do you want to be when you grow up? I said, all right, Aunt Connie, I want to open a zoo. I just said her name, I can't believe I said her name. (laughs) Aunt Connie, if you're watching this, just know this has traumatized me for years. (laughs) So, cat's out of the bag, Aunt Connie. So I said, Aunt Connie, this is what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna open a zoo. I'm gonna to go to UGA, I'm gonna study zoology, I'm gonna graduate and I'm gonna do it. And she goes, okay, you have a plan, nice. How are you gonna get people to invest in your zoo? And I said, what? <laughs> invest, what is invest? It's like when other people give you money to do stuff. I'm like, how am I gonna do that? I, have, I had no plan and so once again, what I thought was the expectation, I thought I came up with a plan, I had everything ready. I was like a 12 year old, mind you. And then my dreams were crushed because it seemed too big and too far out of reach. And this happens to us again and again and again. And it can start with a garbage truck. It could start with Superman. But it continues to grow. And we do need our Aunt Connies in our lives. We do need our pesky ants to question our dreams and to challenge them because we need to ask tough questions. We can't just go and do whatever we want all the time we have to have discernment and wisdom. But what happens when we live into that narrative so much, especially after a dream has failed, then it becomes destructive. We begin to hear the whisper, and the whisper gets louder and louder of, things are never going to change. This is just the way it is. And so by the time we become adults, we just Go with it. That's the thing that we listen to. That's our motivator is, well, things aren't going to change. And so even though I hate this job, this is where I'm going to be. This is just who I am. Just because these relationships aren't working out, it's because I'm this way. And it's just the way it is. And what and the reason I think that happens is because of all of these dreams, all of these things that we wanted to do, not coming into reality the way that we want it to, or not at all. In the book called Say Yes by Scott Erickson, I highly recommend you read this book. A lot of what I will say today comes from and is inspired from what he's written down in that book. But he says that a dream failing is pretty much the same thing as it dying. And so in a sense, it's a brush with death. And with death comes mourning. And to let mourning really run its course, we have to open ourselves up. And it doesn't always feel safe to do that, especially when we're living into a destructive narrative of this is just the way that things are. And the beauty of Jesus and what Jesus offers us is that Jesus says, you may think that this is dead, that this part of you is dead, and he is here today to tell you what if it's just asleep? What if it's just asleep upstairs? And so now we'll go to our passage in the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 9. It's really, it starts at, the whole thing starts at verse 18. For those who have read the story before, this is the one where Jesus goes to do a miracle, and on the way, someone touches the edge of his cloak and they're healed. And most of the time, that's the focus. And so I want us to have a little bit different focus today. And so where we find ourselves is, is, we find ourselves in a town called Capernaum. It's the town where Jesus spent most of his ministry. Most of his disciples came from this place. And so it was, he was well-known. He was very established here. And this particular day, he had just gotten back from across the Sea of Galilee. And he was sitting around the table with his disciples and some of John the Baptist's disciples, and they were talking theology they were talking about, like, this is, how's this, and what about this teaching? What about this interpretation? And in the midst of that, a young ruler comes to him in distress. And he shares with Jesus that his daughter is sick and she is dying. She's 12 years old. And she's back at his home. And he begs Jesus to come with him because he says in verse 19, if you come and touch her, she will live. And so Jesus drops everything he was doing and he immediately goes to where the child is. He immediately starts walking to their home. And so, and of course, like like we say, on the way there, there's a big crowd. His cloak is touched. So he does a miracle on the way to a miracle. So a lot has already happened by the time he gets to this house. And so then we are here at the home in verse 23. And when Jesus arrived at the official's home, he saw the noisy crowd and heard the funeral music. "Get out," he told them. "The girl isn't dead, she is only asleep." But the crowd laughed at him. And after the crowd was put outside, however, Jesus went and took the girl by the hand, and she stood up, and the report of this miracle spread through the entire countryside. Now I've read this story many, many times. Normally, the conclusion I come to is have a strong faith, right? Because that's what the Father did. This is what the official did is he went out on a limb, he put his reputation on the line, he reached out to Jesus said, "Jesus, you're the only one who can help." And because of his faith, his daughter was healed. But for some of you know, many of you don't know, I was blessed by our board and with Pastor Nathan and allowing me to go through probably the toughest and one of the more meaningful experiences I've done in my life so far. And that was a program It's called Clinical Pastoral Education, or otherwise known as CPE. I did it at Baptist Hospital. And it's basically just an internship where twice a week I would go and be a chaplain at the hospital. And some days it was not very eventful. You just go and talk to a few people and have really nice and really meaningful conversations. And then other times you were walking into the most horrible the worst moment of someone's life in the ED, in the emergency room. And with that comes a class. And so there's people around me who are going through the same thing. And on top of all of that, this is something my supervisor, my former supervisor likes to say. He says, if you are going through something, it will find you in the hospital. And so what I come to find was there there was a lot of parts of myself that had not healed from past hurt. There was a lot of parts of me that was still hurting from being burned by church. There was a lot of parts of me that were just unconscious ways of living that I had learned from school, that I learned that this was a safer way to be, that I had not let Jesus in to heal. And so when I came across this passage about a month after I finished back in May, I saw it totally differently, and that's the beautiful thing about Scripture, is no matter if you're reading it through the first time or the hundredth time, God has a way of showing you his love from a different perspective, if we allow it. And so, as for before I saw this of just have a strong faith, I saw it before of I see myself in every single one of those characters in that story. I see myself in the official I see myself in the noisy crowd, and I see myself in the girl who was dead, in the young child upstairs, who everyone thought was dead but Jesus. I think we all can relate to each one. I believe that God has put on my heart today to share with you of how each of these people that were in this miracle are players within our lives and the ways that we live throughout the world. And so the first person I want us to look at is the official, because that we really deep down, we're all in search for help. We're all looking for a way for hurt to be healed, for life to be easier, for life to be more meaningful. And that's what this official is trying to do in his search of desperation for Jesus And so this story goes across several different Gospels. One that is in more detail is in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 8, if you want to read that later on today or later on this week. And in Luke's Gospel, he names this official as Jairus. And Jairus Jairus is this synagogue official. And so basically that just means he was an elder or he's like one of our board members. And so he's a very high-ranking official and making sure things went smoothly in their day's church. And so him going out to Jesus in the first place as someone who was very controversial in that time was a big deal. So he was putting a lot on the line. He was very wealthy. He was very well-respected in his community. And we don't know everything that Jairus tried before he went to Jesus. We don't know the links of where he was trying to get help. But what we do see is that he finally was able to realize help was not in his house. It was outside of his comfort zone. It was outside of what he was familiar with. He had to go out into the streets to find the one person who could help him. And maybe that's you today. Maybe you are looking for help, and maybe God is challenging you to step out of your comfort zone Step out of the familiar and into the unfamiliar. Because maybe the world that you have created around you that is familiar, that is comfortable, in that world, the version of you that lives there might have no vulnerabilities and may not have any weaknesses. And we all have weaknesses. And so maybe it's God trying to move you from that point to say, hey, bring your whole self to the party, including the parts that you don't like. But it takes us stepping out of the house and going into those unfamiliar places to try to find where is Jesus. And the second character I want to look at, and this is the main one that I feel like has the most impact for me, is the noisy crowd. And the noisy crowd, they are singing the song of Nothing is Ever Going to Change. Something I found interesting about this crowd is if you read in more literal translations of your Bibles, like the New American Standard or the ESV, they'll say flute players. And so that immediately caught my eye. I was like, what is a flute player? Why are there flute players at this funeral? I've never seen someone play a flute outside of a marching band. But what happened in that day, there was actually a law that even the poorest citizen in Israel, upon a death, would get a minimum of two flute players and a mourner, a wailing woman, in some translations. And so in essence, these were, this is like the opposite of a hype crew. These are professional mourners. They do this regularly. That is their job. So their job is to go to these funerals and to make noise. And Back in that day, it was more so to scare away evil spirits, but I think there's a deeper meaning here in that I have done the same thing, and we all, I believe, have done the same thing. We live in a time in history where it's so easy to make commotion, to make noise. And we we can have, like, the right mind about it of, they're, they're like, okay, well, we're scaring away the evil spirits. We say, well, I need to work 12 hours a day because I need enough money to make for rent. But really, the reason is I don't want to go home because it's not safe, We create this commotion because there's something upstairs that is too painful, too scary, too whatever to even recognize. And we build hobbies around this. We build organizations and businesses around making commotion. We all have hired flute players and a wailing woman in our lives. And in this sense, the way that God showed it to me when I read this a couple months ago is, Jared, what are you making all the commotion about? What is all of this noise for? What are you ignoring? And I ask each of you the same question. If you have commotion, why is it really there? What are you avoiding? What are you trying to drown out Because even though it may have good intentions at the beginning, singing that song of things are never going to change over and over and over again, it kills our wonder. It kills our imagination. It kills our creativity. It chokes it out like a weed. It chokes it. And so I ask you this morning, Are we willing to quiet ourselves to usher out the noise and hear what Jesus has to say? Which brings us to the third and final character in this miracle, which is the child. Is the child who everyone thought was dead, but Jesus said was just asleep. What I find really interesting about the way that Jesus went about this particular miracle is he very easily if it was me, because I normally try to avoid a lot of tension and conflict. If for those Enneagram folks out there, I'm an Enneagram 9, a peacemaker. And so it's, it's taken, it takes a lot of energy for me to like really face really hard things that make me feel uncomfortable. And so when I tell you to get out of your comfort zone, I'm right there with you. I'm preaching to the choir here today. But if I was Jesus in that scenario, I would have probably awkwardly looked at the the flute players like, that's weird, and I would have walked upstairs, done the miracle, brought her downstairs, like, hey, look, guys, look what I did. Don't tell anyone, and then leave. But Jesus doesn't do that. The first thing that Jesus does when he walks in to that home, it says, get out. There's a scene in the show, The Chosen, that goes through this very miracle And the first thing that the actor that plays Jesus does when he walks in the room is he looks at the funeral, the commotion. He says, What are you doing? What are you doing here? Get out. She's not dead, she's asleep. And of course, and we read here that the crowd laughed at him. They're like, What are you talking about, man? We do this all the time. This is what we do. We've seen it before. Same old song and dance. She's not coming back. And so Jesus ushers them out before he does the miracle. Because Jesus, what he does is he speaks truth to the lie that nothing is ever going to change. And when we let Jesus in, our perspective too shifts. He turns things upside down. He, he will do what we don't expect him to do. And I think that's what the most resistance is of letting Jesus in is because we want Jesus to do this one thing for us. Jesus, you just do this one thing, then, great, everything's going to be awesome. And he'll come in and focus on something else. And you're like, "What are you doing?" Because G- when we let Jesus in, He is going to change everything. Jesus is here to tell us that the parts of us that we thought were dead, that were untouchable, unsalvage- unsalvageable, are really just asleep upstairs. They've only been a few steps away. It's just taken a little intervention to see that, and that's what Jesus is here for. And he's also here to wake those parts of ourselves up, to wake up our wonder, to wake up our ability to dream, to wake up our ability to see that the present is here right now and there's always possibility. There's always a chance for change. God is always at our door ready for us to run back to him if we've walked away. And so now as we start to wind down a little bit, we've looked at that passage Jesus, what he does is I believe, and this is one of my like main cornerstones of what I believe, is that God works with us. God is not only with us, but God works with us. And so when we let Jesus in, he will work with us to wake up our inner child. He has worked with me to awaken these parts of me that I thought were dead. These parts of me that I thought were not safe for every, to show everyone because people would think I was weird. And so I want us to go through three ways that we can wake up our inner child. The first way is to become a visitor in your everyday life. Become a visitor in your everyday life. I want you to think about the first time that you went to the beach or your beach people. So think of the first time you went to North Carolina to the mountains. Of how you were caught in just awe of what you saw. You couldn't believe it. It's the most beautiful thing you've ever seen. You, like, it was outside of what you knew, and so there was no words to express it, and so you were just there, and you were experiencing it. And then on day three, you're just used to it by then, right? That's, norm- that's normally what happens, right? It's like the first time at Disney World, that was amazing, but when you go the third time, you notice the, the heat a little bit more, you know, you realize, yeah, that dude wearing the Pluto costume is a guy. He's not Pluto. Um, and, and so you get familiar with it. And so and that's really hard. And so it's, we often, to try to do that, we'll like go on vacation. We'll go to these places we've never gone before. But what if we try to embody that in our everyday life? This is something that I've tried to do by just driving over the Three Mile Bridge every day. I live over in Pensacola. And so to get over to the church office every day, I have to go over the Three Mile Bridge. And this is a practice that Scott Erickson talks about in his book that he said try to find things you haven't noticed before. Ask questions, be curious. Remember how if any of the teachers in here know how annoying it can be when that one student continues asking questions the whole time? Be that person. Be the person that asks questions that's always wondering why things work. Even something like this building. Of being in here is like, okay, like where did this come from? Who built it? Why was it built? Why was it built out here and not somewhere else? Just little things like that. Of just looking at the things that you are familiar with with new eyes. Wondering, what, what is this? How did this get here? Because that, that's kind of like a hack. To reignite wonder in our lives. The second way is to find activities that bring us to life. Find activities that bring you to life. What is it, the one thing when you wake up on a Saturday morning that you cannot wait to do? What is it that makes you giddy? I love that word giddy, like makes you like a little kid and it's like, and your your partner or like your dog or something when they see you get excited, they're like, okay, like calm down. Like what is that thing? What is that thing you get so excited about? Right. I feel like my wife is like the giddiest person in the world. She's excited to do everything. <laughs> and so I know it's like it can be like a little bit awkward because I feel like when she gets that excited because my wife, she always wants to go. She's like, where can we go? She used to work for Delta and we had flight benefits and I was a youth minister. So I had to work on Sundays and she it'd be like Thursday or Friday. She's like, hmm, Jared, what do you think about going to Colorado this weekend? Hmm? And I'm like, no. Like, we can't go to Colorado, but she's always wanting to go because she's always thinking about that thing that she just gets excited about. And she can't wait to do it. And so what is that thing for you? What is it? Write it down right now if you can think of it. It can be multiple things. For me, I'll just be honest. For me, it's, right now it's learning the piano and playing church league softball. Those are the two things. Those are the, so be specific. Be specific. I get excited every week to play softball with our group here. I get so excited because I love to compete. It brings out the kid in me. I mean, for crying out loud, I just bought a bat like yesterday. I couldn't help myself. I just wanted to. I was like, I got to practice more. I got to go out to the fields. I got to swing more because I love it so much. Before that, it was kickball. McKenna Curtis, she started a kickball team with the Blue Wahoos. And I pretty much just took over as the coach. I said, all right, guys, I'm doing lineups. Let's do it. Let's go win some games. Let's do this thing. We got jerseys, we got the whole nine, guys, the whole nine. When I did, when I joined the softball team after the first game, I went home and started designing baseball caps. I'm not kidding. I was like, I was ready. And so what that thing is, why? Ask why, why am I like that? Because I know for me, I know I want to like play. I want to be with people, my friends, the people I enjoy, and I want to just go and compete and have fun. It's what I've always done as a kid. I did it as a little one with my dad in the basement. Like whatever that thing is, be specific and then go and do it. And then the third and final thing, when you find those two things, bring an adventure buddy. Bring someone along. Yes, do have some activities to yourself, like if you like mowing the lawn or if you like to go have coffee on the back porch in the morning and have a little prayer time, do that, but have an adventure buddy. Have someone to share the experience with because the only thing better than experiencing something is experiencing it with another person. And that's what I love about our church is we try to foster that. We try to get people to get in community and to do these things together through our groups. And so if you're not a part of a group, It doesn't have to be here. It could be at another church. It can be a club. It can be whatever. But find that thing and find those people, that community to surround yourself with that encourage you to be like that. If they put you down, leave them at the curb. I'm serious. If someone is not building you up and they're just constantly tearing you down, then what is the point of being around them? What's the point? They're the ones causing the commotion. Escort them out. Say, thank you, you've done great things, but I'll I'll see you later. I'll see you next week, maybe. But I guarantee you, if you put these three things into practice, you will begin to see a change in your life. People, The right people will start to get attracted to you. They'll want to be around you because of what you were living out of the energy that you were giving to other people. Or in other words, you're gonna have good vibes and people are gonna wanna be around good vibes, right? And so as we close, I have a little section on your notes. And so if you don't have your notes, you can write it in your phone or write it on your hand. But I want us to do just a little activity and hopefully jumpstart this process for you So once you have that ready, go ahead and start thinking, if money wasn't an object, what would you be doing? Money wasn't a thing, you can do anything in the world, what would it be? Where would you live? What job would you have? What would your hobbies be? Serious, be as crazy as you want what is it that you would do? And once you finish writing that down, I know I saw a couple of expressions of, yeah, right, like I'd be able to do that. And that's fair. Because what we often focus on is we focus on the outcomes of what we do, rather than the qualities of who we are when we do them. And so instead of looking at the outcomes of how much money you will or will not make, how well-known or not well-known you would be. Write down, think of and write down the qualities of the kind of person that exists in that outcome. What type of message would you be living out in that world if you were doing that? What would you value? What would you treasure? Who would you become if you were living that life. Because the beauty of this practice is, is you don't have to be living on the beach, surfing every day to live out the qualities of what that looks like. You don't have to have a mansion on a hilltop, you don't have to be rich to have a rich and fulfilling life. You can be a generous, giving, loving person who you are right now. Because right now is where all of that starts. We can that is it's like an old football coach said in my hometown. It's like keep the main thing the main thing and control what you can control. What you can't control, just throw it out the window. What we can control is the quality. The qualities that we live out. Our character. How open we are with people. How giving of ourselves and our time and our treasure we are with others. Those are the things that we can control. And those are the things that we value when we let Jesus into our lives in that way. And let him shake things up a little bit. I want us to close. We're going to close in prayer. I'll move this over here for the team. If the worship team is, well, Nick's just going to be up here. Can we give it up for Nick real quick? It's been an honor getting to know Nick. If you, if you haven't met him yet, please do. He worships over at Intercry Ministries at the table over in Foley. Um, they worship on Sunday nights. Highly recommend going if you're able to. But with the theme of Endless Summer comes, our students are leaving tomorrow to go to Camp Real Life over in Mariana, Florida for the week, which is super exciting to them. Another, a lot of my memories of summer are at church camp or at like a church camp. And so all that we've talked about today, I believe that those camps, when done well, foster that. Because you have kids coming in from all different walks of life, all different sorts of scenarios, And they come in and they leave thinking they can take on the world. I know that because I have experienced that as a student. And then I get home and I realize I'm not going to take over the world. And the same thing happens today. that wonder is squashed. It's like, oh, you think that you've gone to a week or a camp a week and you can change. But I know what you did all last year. So that's impossible. No way. No way you can change that much in a week. Get out of here and it's squashed. And so as we go to our God in prayer, let's keep those students in our minds and let's keep the McKennas, McKenna Tate who are going with them on our minds and hearts as well and in our prayers as they lead that group. And so Jesus, we come to you now. Lord, we lift up our students and our student leaders this morning as they are going off to Camp God. Lord, we know that in times like that, When something so impactful and so meaningful is about to happen, that's when life seems to take a turn and everything to go wrong and all the distractions to happen. And God, we're not going to ask for that storm to stop, but we're going to ask you to be present in that storm. If it be your will for you to take away that storm and to calm it, may it be so, all we ask is you're present within it. I pray that hearts and lives are changed this coming week in those students both from our group and all of the groups that are going and all of the groups that have been there so far, God. We lift them all up to you. Lord, as we join in worship, may you ignite the wonder inside of us. May, may you make us not afraid to worship fully in reckless abandon because of who you are and what you have done, are doing, and continue to do within us and around us. God, you are a way maker. You plow out paths that we can't see. You awaken us to ourselves. You awaken us to who you are and what you are doing in the world. God, we just ask to be part of it. May you give us the courage to step out. The courage to step out of the boat and to join you in the wonder-working, healing power of what you are doing. Jesus, we pray all this in your name. Amen.